So you guys up for one more, a shorter one? And we're all like, nah, nah. there was and a that lot noise of noise was group. just your knees. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there was a lot. <laughs> what was that? My knees. <laughs> and I'm gonna try if I have space for it to overwinter at least one of my peppers. I'll let them figure that out amongst themselves. I'll just line them all up and throw a crowbar and a broken pool stick on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> in front of them and come back and see who's left standing do you have any funny names for our listeners this week should i intro do you want intro you definitely historically are better at doing the intro (laughs) okay but it's um autumn (laughs) agostikis i thought we weren't using that word around here anymore (laughs) (laughs) happy hyssops Oh, there you go. Uh, there you go. Uh, happy, happy hyssops. Yep. Hyssop, hyssop homies. Oh, hyssop homies. Kind of like, hey, hyssop homie. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So right. I'm, I'm starting. Yeah, I think. Yeah, since we don't have Lindsay to do it for us this time. Yeah. To so rudely interrupt. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. I liked it. Yeah. I think it worked out well. Yeah, I think so too. Hey there, Take It or Leave It listeners. This is Nick Farringdon. And this is Ethan Wise. And we are coming to you with the Take It or Leave It podcast. I'm recording from Illinois and Ethan is recording down from St. Louis. Yeah, just another long distance recording here. Didn't work out for us to meet in person for this visit. Yeah, hopefully we'll be meeting in person soon to get some more episodes recorded. But yeah, for now we're doing remote again for you guys. And this week, we're kind of talking about a mix of things, all a little bit fall related. Mm -hmm. Um, I just got back earlier in the week. I was down in Kentucky with some friends. We went to Red River Gorge to do some hiking down there. We saw a massive natural stone arch. I did not realize, I think, is it Utah that's known for the most natural monuments in the United States, I believe? That I don't know, but that sounds right. I mean, any pictures of of uh, landscape at Utah seems like there is so many of those sort of structures there. Apparently, uh, a couple of the people that we were on the trip with, they hike quite a bit. They're from still the Midwest, but further, you know, closer to the Kentucky area. They were saying that outside of... Utah, if I'm getting that state right, Kentucky actually is second in the U.S. for most natural stone monuments like that, which I had no idea. Apparently, it's a whole thing to go and Mm. and search through the state parks there to find all these various arches and stone formations and things like that. So I had no idea. Interesting. I didn't know that either. But so I got to say, as far as Missouri goes, I'm very impressed by the topography of Missouri. Yeah. And just how how often you'll see roads carved out of these giant limestone or field stone hills. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's it's one state away from Illinois. And I just feel like the topography is so dramatically different. I think maybe the glacier stopped before it got there or something. Yeah. Yeah, even, just kind of smoothed over Illinois and then was like, nah, Missouri's pretty cool. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, well, I think we were somewhere around the 1,000 to 1,500 elevation feet of elevation range, somewhere in there. But this arch, we kind of went down. It was quite a steep hike down between, you know, crawling over rocks and boulders and twists and turns and some pretty steep stairs before we got way down into this gorge area where this stone arch was i believe that arch was about 80 feet high and i I took some pictures and some videos i took a video of kind of standing under the arch that we can post on the socials so you guys can see if you're curious definitely would recommend it as a hiking spot how much do you think you explored i know you said you were there for you know you hiked most of the day and did over like six miles yeah um, of of hiking 
which is a lot if anyone's ever done any hiking. Six miles is a large trek. So do you feel like there was still a boatload of that state park to explore? Oh, yeah. From the impression I got from the two people who frequent that area a lot more, because I think they only live like three hours away, there's, you know, you could explore that area for days probably and not see everything. So since we had the better part of like one full day to do, I think it was like right at like 6.66 miles or something like that, which we had the option to do a third trail after that, but the whole group kind of... (laughs) She's like, so you guys up for one more, a shorter one? And we're all like, nah, nah. There, and that, there was and a that lot noise of was group. just your knees. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot. <laughs> what was that? My knees. <laughs> yeah, there was pretty much a universal hesitation in the group after coming from back up in the gorge to look at the arch. Everybody was pretty wiped after that because once you get down there with all the steep stairs, it was a lot of tricky navigation over rocks and boulders and there's moisture and sand once you're that far down in the valley and so everybody you're saying after you've trekked 6.66 miles is that what you said 6.66 so people were like hey maybe we shouldn't tempt fate anymore (laughs) (laughs) like oh those three numbers don't match up with us being out in the wilderness so right Let's let's go home now. I saw the omen. Yeah. I don't know why your mic still sounds so quiet. Really? It still sounds bad? Maybe it's just my head. Oh, I think I turned my headphones down too much. Oh, okay. Yeah, that sounds better. Okay. Yeah. Where did I leave off? Satan. See? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Ethan, do you hear that? What? Oh, it's an ad. Real quick, thanks for listening to our episode today. You can stay in touch with us by supporting us on Patreon. We are at patreon.com slash take it or leave it. And we'll have bonus content on Patreon for all of our subscribers there where you can get extra episodes and snippets from the show that we don't release to all the other platforms. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube at take it or leave it pod. And you can also visit our websites, takeitorleafitpod.com. If you have any questions or comments or any stories you'd like us to research or talk about, or hell, send us a picture of a plant you want us to identify, you can send that information to show at takeitorleafitpod.com. You can also follow us on our individual Instagrams. I am at hortwise, H-O-R-T-W-I-S-E. And I am at N Farringdon, N-F-A-R-R-I-N-G-D-O-N. Thanks so much. We'll get back to the episode. Oh, you got me. <laughs> so we were talking about how much you could explore there, and they had your your friends had suggested hiking further, but after traveling six and a half miles, people were like, no more, please. Yeah, yeah. We did stop between the two trails before starting the second one down to see the arch. Uh, you know, I would hope so. Yeah, we stopped and had a break for food and that kind of thing. But um, can you imagine they just like trekked you like, no, keep pushing, keep pushing. <laughs> That's fine. You know, you if you're not used to hiking, you should totally travel almost seven miles straight before. Right. So well, and bit. since it was going to be a longer hike, most of us had backpacks with you know water sure. and a little bit of snacks and stuff. So. What was your snack of choice, Nick? Well, we had a cooler in the car for between trails, but I think I had some of those RX bars and some Lara bars in there and a big old thing of orange juice, you know. Okay, okay, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I anticipated juice and a bag of chips. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a big old bag of garden salsa. I was the one uh, to bring chips. all the chips for the trip for the cabin <laughs> and there were I mean, you got to have salt. It's yeah. an electro it's an electrolyte. There were definitely garden salsa sun chips. I'll have I'll have to bleep that because they're not paying us for ad time yet. Garden salsa solstice chips. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, the arch was incredible. I'd recommend anybody to go there. I'm sure the arch had a very specific name, uh, one that I'm not able to remember offhand. But if I can find that, I'll post it in the episode description links. But yeah, it was about an 80 foot or so arch. 
and uh, then it had quite a few boulders underneath that you could climb up on. So all of us kind of took turns taking pictures up on top of this huge pile of boulders under the arch. And, you know, you're like a tiny speck with this giant stone structure behind you. So it was very cool. Lots of lots of cool photo spots. Definitely cool. While we were down there, there was an area in the rock face. I sent you some pictures while we were there and we'll post those to the socials too. There was an area with some kind of native heuchera or coral bells just growing in the face of the rock in a little, you know, little cavern carved out there in rock and sand. Yeah, and it looked like a cultivar I've seen, like that that sort of green, caramely and then purple on the underside of the leaf yeah kind of one of the more muted purple yeah more of the matte leaves rather than the shiny Mm -hmm. yeah i was surprised to see that down in there tons and growing in the rock face yes yeah i don't know so people if you're growing coral bells grow them they don't want to be waterlogged and they don't need super rich soil and what (laughs) nick found like we'll t- I'll tell people that all the time, but what you found thoroughly backs up that argument of like you don't need to overly care for your coral bells. Right. I was really surprised too. I think it must have been some kind of native rhododendron or something. When I first saw them, the leaves were so big. I almost thought it was like a shrubby type of magnolia, but then they were everywhere and only as shrub form, and it was kind of like that typical like southern magnolia type the dark green with the more the kind of coppery underside or so but but, like a thicker feeling leaf yeah but like more of the skinny elongated skinny ish elongated oval leaves did you take pictures of those too i don't know if i got a picture of those maybe somewhere in the background Hmm. i mean i would imagine that a rhododendron in uh kentucky because isn't kentucky zone seven maybe and who knows with all this elevation change in the mountains and the hills and we were way Absol- down yeah it could yeah hard to say but these were generally big round i say the average one was eight by eight round if not eight to ten wide not as coppery on the underside as a magnolia but did that send mm-hmm. it looks rhododendrony to me yeah and, and I, I googled see... it wild rhododendron in Kentucky, uh-huh. and it does say that they're that they're well most of the rhododendron in this is from Kentucky Native Plant Wildlife dot com. While most of the rhododendron in Kentucky is Rose Bay Rhododendron Maximum, which has white to pink flowers and blooms in June, we do have populations of the Catawba. That's the one that I had in my brain. For some reason, I think of Catawba rhododendrons as being one that can more naturally grow as like a wild landscape plant mm-hmm. or a wild native plant, but. And it was cool. definitely more so as we were getting down into the valley, shadier understory, more moist yeah. area. I was trying to figure out what possibly you might've found. Like if it was a rhododendron, what rhododendron you might have found. Sure. And I found, now this isn't a, an extension office site or an ORG or anything. It is just a .com. And I realize, you know, we sometimes tell people to be skeptical of these. But this particular .com, com, looks like it's just a this person, Hannah, likes to go hiking and she thoroughly documents the trails that she goes on, both the flora and the fauna life of these trails, great pictures, great descriptions of what she's found. It's really cool. And she was at the Red River Gorge, and this article that she posted was back in 2019. And she talks about seeing rhododendrons blooming, a white flowering rhododendron, which I believe is the rhododendron maxima, in that same park that you were walking through. So I think that lines up and as to what you were seeing. Yeah, must have been it then. Very cool. I was surprised to see those quite a bit. Super cool. And then the other thing that we came across, again, the person who organized the hike pointed this out when she knew I was into plant stuff. We ran across a couple little fenced off conservation areas that were to protect the white haired goldenrod or Solidago albopilosa. And apparently its only native range is in this Red River Gorge geological area in Kentucky. 
and it has a yellow flower, same color as typical goldenrod, but not in that kind of spire like you see with regular goldenrod. Yeah, that's sort of like there's a common cultivar that you might see as a landscape plant called like fireworks or something like that or Fourth mm-hmm. of July. And they call it that because that flower kind of looks like an explosion trail right. and the trails that kind of happen after an explosion, like a firework explosion. So, yeah, when you showed me that, I I would not have glanced at that and assumed goldenrod based on the flower or the foliage right because the the native goldenrod that we are most familiar with has that narrow pointed kind of spear-shaped leaves off from the stem and these are much more Mm -hmm. rounded kind of pointed oval with serration so again the yellow flower but in smaller clusters and closer to the stem so yeah, I wouldn't have guessed, but they had a few patches of it there. And again, apparently it's only native to that particular area. And it grows, this was at the bottom of the gorge, tucked under some rock faces, you know, where the water kind of carved everything out over millions of years. So it, no wonder that it's federally endangered or federally threatened, I suppose. Because it's like growing where it shouldn't really yeah, yeah. thrive. Terrible So place. it's the panda of the plant world. Yep. Just, yeah. That's pretty just, accurate. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just surviving, but not really doing what it probably should to really survive. Doing nothing to help itself out. Yeah. Right. Just like, oh, I'm just going to stay here and eat this plant, this one singular bamboo plant that provides me nothing. Yep. But as long as I sit here and eat it 90% of the day, I'll survive. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So this, I'll read, there was a, a sign posted from, I assume the state, whatever department manages this park. So habitat is rock shelters and on ledges grows individually and in large patches. So this was a pretty good sized patch of it. Long, soft white hairs cover leaves and stems. Didn't look super close. I didn't quite see that, but flowers are fragrant and bright yellow, bloom September through November. And of course, threats are basically human interactions, walking and camping in those areas, or if people are around digging for artifacts or whatever. So that can compact the soil and damage the plants and that kind of thing and even further limit. But it's a federally threatened species and unique to only that area found nowhere else on Earth. Wow. Yeah. Super cool find. Yeah. I mean, the plant seems like it's really not doing what it could be doing to be better. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like it would do better if somebody could uh, collect some seeds and breed it out in a greenhouse and sell it as a shade plant in nutrient-poor areas or something because growing under rock ledges at the bottom of valleys probably isn't going to lend well to its future of surviving. Right. It's just like, man, like you picked a rather crappy spot to hunker down in. Yeah. I mean, I know they said it's it's likely in part, you know, it's our fault that it is where it is, but it also sounds like the plant's not, you know, when when you can have a, a horseweed or sometimes referred to as mare's tail, which sometimes in brief, like looks, I, I'm thinking of that plant because sometimes from a distance, it kind of looks like it could turn into a goldenrod. Because they grow very vertical. They have those long lanceolate leaves on it and then that flower head on the top. So I think of that sometimes when I envision goldenrod. But that plant will literally grow in the crack of a highway. Yeah. And then you have this plant that just like can't figure it shit out. (laughs) Right. You know, of all the plants that will survive in the cracks of your driveways and on highways and all these obscure places in your gutters... And then you have this federally recognized endangered plant that just is like, I don't know, guys. Yeah. It's like, I don't know, guys. I don't really want to be here. I stopped taking my medication a few years ago. (laughs) You keep just forcing me along. (laughs) But either way, it is like the native goldenrod that we're starting to see bloom now. It is a good fall, late season pollinator. And that kind of leads into... absolutely what we wanted to touch on this week and that's kind of some topics related to starting to prepare for fall yeah it kind of came up when we were discussing what we might do for this episode and while it is early i think for many of us at least in the united states 
even if you live in a colder climate zone like Montana, Washington, you know, a place that might get, I should say, hit by winter sooner, like the northwest or the northeast. Sure. I still think it's a little early to do fall prep, but I wanted to bring it up. I, I am a member of a few different gardening groups, and now that I no longer work at a garden center, it's therapeutic for me to still answer people's plant questions. Right. So I use these groups as a, as a way to do that, and I've seen a very large influx in, especially in some areas like Washington, Montana, Colorado, Oregon have already seen some snow. And so I think it's encouraged or not encouraged, but it's made people think it's time to prep for fall and it's still fall. Even if you've seen snow already, it's still fall. I just wanted to let people know that while they should keep fall preparation on their mind, it's still early for doing any pruning outside of if you just haven't pruned any dead off of your plants. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, it's always okay to prune dead limbs. Yep. Especially if it's on your pear tree. Yeah. (laughs) The guy that owns the property next to me just limbed up both of the pear trees and they're both severely, well, one definitely was, the other was looking okay, but he limbed them both up and he's like, yeah, I limbed these, blah, 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 blah. He's like, what are you thinking about these trees since that other one fell down? I feel like you want to maybe put something else in here. And I go, well, I pointed out the fire blight and I go, and, you know, and he pruned them in August, September. I go, and if you prune these and you don't sanitize your pruners between every You cut, just spread you it just all spread over. Around. He goes, well, because you want me to just cut them down? I go, Yeah. keep the shit off my cars yeah i do still think it's pretty early to worry about cutting things back for their dormancy period or worrying about spraying something like dormant oil spray for overwintering insects or fungus problems on their plants i i guess i just wanted to to let people know that while it's coming still a little bit soon for that sort of prep It is still okay to plant, though. I think there are certain things that you can still incorporate in your landscape, planting hardy plants and evergreens that are zone hardy. I I don't think it's too late to do landscape installations. Right. Yeah, even up here, there are a few trees, like some of the maples are starting to get a little bit of color here and there, but sure. Even still, there's a lot of stuff that's not really thinking about fall yet. I was Mm -mm. shocked. Some things are just starting to push off their blooms, like the goldenrod. Right, right, exactly. I was surprised to see when I got back how much of the corn is like totally dry and ready to go and being harvested and that kind of thing. So that kind of caught me by surprise. But yeah, a lot of stuff still has plenty of time to hang on until we get further into fall and start to get some colder nights. But even still, there are a few things that people can start to do to get ready for fall. I know one common one and something that we had discussed was starting to bring plants, whether that be tropicals or house plants, things like that, that you want to winter over that you keep outside in season and starting to bring those in for the fall. Did you want to get into that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. So even though it's not quite time to maybe worry about outdoor fall prep, it is starting to creep in on the potential of whether or not you need to worry about your house plants, like you said. So like here in St. Louis, we have gotten some drops into high fifties, low sixties, depending on where you're at in the area. And while that's still not cold enough to cause damage to most of your tropical plants or your house plants that you might've put outside for the summer, it's still a warning of like, Hey, the cold temperatures are for sure going to happen. And often many of your house plants or tropicals are going to start suffering once the temperatures drop below 50 for more than several hours at a time. Usually for sure by 40, 45 degrees Fahrenheit, you are going to see potential cold damage on many of your types of tropical plants that are outside. 55 to 60, I think is still safe. But what you might start to notice is some of them doing like a leaf drop or something like I have some of my plants that go through semi-dormancy over winter like my desert rose which we talked about in our top six bottom six house plants episode yep so the desert rose adenium that's a plant of mine that once it gets cold and usually once it comes inside it drops its leaves and then I have a couple other plants that do that as well but I wanted to you know bring it because if, if anyone's like me and they have 152 house plants. <laughs> 
<laughs> all of them are outside. Literally 152. <laughs> not, not all of them are outside, but a lot of them are. Bringing them inside is always a problem that I create for myself because, I don't know, masochistic thoughts, I guess. But when I do bring them inside, often a lot of them do have to be snug up against each other. And if you potentially have an insect or a mite problem that is existing in the plant prior to you bring it in, and now you've brought all your plants together and they're staying snug, you're just going to spread that around. Or eggs that were laid on the plants that haven't hatched yet and that kind of thing, or in the soil. And I think it's probably a lot of people who put their house plants outside over summer have dealt with at some point in time some level of gnats or spider mites or aphids that they have brought into their house. Gnats probably the most common one that I talk to people about because I think it's the most invasive as far as you know you see the gnats flying around your plants mm-hmm. and they fly around you and other things so you just tend to notice them more right followed by the spider mites because they will eventually with a high enough infestation create webbing which is easy to find and easy to spot yeah you could even have you know mealybugs under the soil that you don't even see so absolutely it's, it's good to i've had to stuff. throw plants away because i discovered mealybugs on the roots of my plant and i'm just like all right i'm right. not dealing with that that is far beyond what i comfortably want to deal with as far as an infestation goes yeah and since they're going to be inside for winter and for several months usually especially if it's like a foliage plant that doesn't really flower not very often anyway usually i feel comfortable in that scenario recommending like systemic insecticides Mm -hmm. Is that what you usually go with? Yeah, most of my plants will probably get dusted with some sort of systemic. Usually the common ingredient is imidacloprid. And imidacloprid is absorbed by the plant, making it toxic to chewing or sucking insects. Or I was about to say mites, but actually I think it was you who told me this years ago. And, and of course, it's true, but want to make sure people don't think, oh, Nick just told me this. You know, it came from you knowing what you were talking about and reading labels. But you had told me that imidacloprid doesn't control mites. And so something for people to be... Or at least it's not be, rated on the label, I don't believe. None of the, whether it's a fertilizer that I have that has systemic in it, systemic granules, which I only use on like my cacti or other mm-hmm. foliar house plants to feed them and also make them toxic to chewing insects. I never use that product on like my desert rose, which will produce a flower. Right. And the purpose of that is because it can translocate and any beneficial pollinator that goes to that flower can then be susceptible to that chemical, which we talked about that back in our disease and pest management episode, if you guys want more details on that. Yeah. So whether I'm using a fertilizer with a systemic in it or just using systemic granulars or powder, probably coming in in fall, I'll only use systemic granulars and powder but on my plants that i know are more prone to getting spider mites or if i've already seen spider mites on them this season which unfortunately i have a big problem with that so i will likely have to treat most of my plants because i have azaleas that get it every year and it's just and the azaleas are all over my property and every year i put plants outside i I have to deal with spider mites unfortunately but i will use a product like triple action which we've also talked about before and is one of my go-tos it has pyrethrins and it has neem oil in it now the neem oil is very small but still adds a little bit of something different you know whereas mm-hmm. the neem inhibits it's a what is a growth regulator yeah, or, or kind an, of inhibits the metamorphosis yeah, process of, of an, a insect yeah the azadiractin the main active ingredient which we talked again in those past episodes with pest management how unless you're using the refined version of neem which the active chemical is azadiractin you know your results can be a little more varied but yeah that chemical acts as an insect growth regulator that as those insects try to go to their next growth stage or emerge from an egg or whatever it halts that process midway through and that's how it kills them so it's not an immediate effect but like you said with the triple action you essentially have three different chemicals with three different modes of action so one way or the other hopefully one or more of those three is having the desired effect of killing that pest right and then the neem also being meant as like a very mild fungicide i 
usually don't like to recommend neem as a fungicide. I think it can be effective if it's the right concentration and if it's a mild enough fungal infection that you caught early on enough. But that's part of the name of triple action is it's, you know, insecticide, miticide, fungicide. I I don't necessarily think that it's the best fungicide you can use, but I do like the fact that it has both pyrethrins, which is derived from the chrysanthemum plant, and it has neem oil with the active ingredient as a directin and giving you two modes to attack pests. And the pyrethrin, so you had described how neem oil affects the creepy crawlies, pyrethrins will attack the nervous system and mm-hmm. seems to be better for attacking adults. It's not necessarily going to attack any eggs or early larval stages. I don't think it's as effective, but it is relatively effective for sure on the adult forms of insects. So yeah. having both neem and pyrethrins in your insecticide, and you can even alternate too if you want. You can one week spray something like pyrethrins and neem, and then the other week you could try something like insecticidal soap. And if you alternate your insecticides like that, you have a better chance of of tackling that even in conjunction with putting something like a systemic on your soil can help you get ahead of any insects that you might bring into your house when overwintering your house plants and tropicals. Yeah, especially because those the systemics do take a little while to be absorbed by the plant, whereas some of those others that you've mentioned with, well, specifically the pyrethrins is a contact kill. So if you visibly can see and reach the insects, the pest insects to spray, that will knock down what's there invisible on contact and can kind of help to knock that population down a little bit or be preventative if there's anything floating around that's hiding around in the leaves that, you know, gives the plant some time to absorb the granular or the liquid or powder, whatever your systemic form was in, gives that time to work and and be absorbed before starting to be effective. Yeah. So it is a process, but it is something that is necessary. So definitely in considering what you'll be doing as far as bringing plants in and what you choose to overwinter, start thinking about what sort of pest management you might need to incorporate into your new routine as you now house your plants inside again. Yeah, especially if you're starting to get a pretty good sized collection of plants or plants that maybe are a little more funky unusual that you've spent a lot of money on. If you bring those plants in and later have a pest problem it's a lot trickier to treat one like you said they've been maybe in a little more close proximity maybe you only have a couple sunny windows or one big sunny window that you're trying to get everything around that area so they're getting enough light through winter they're closer together easy for insects to spread around once those plants are inside and it's freezing outside you can't exactly take everything out on your your porch or your back patio or whatever to line it all out and spray it once you have a problem you know good point point. maybe individually taking a few plants to your bathtub or whatever to try to spray since you can't bring them outside because it's way too cold it's just much better to do it preventatively while it's still plenty warm outside and then bring stuff in then Mm -hmm. Uh, because you'll likely run into a problem later on if you don't. It is something for me I deal with every year, Yeah. no matter where I've lived. Although, like I said, now that I'm living here where I currently have spider mites are much more of an issue than they ever have been. But gnats, for sure, have always been something that I've had to deal with. And the imidacloprid in the systemic will, will absolutely kill the larva in there as well. And then you might have to get like those yellow sticky traps, too. I know that they're unsightly but they can surely help as far as in conjunction with other things that you've done. So I'm just always prepared. I got my triple action. I got insecticidal soap. I have yellow sticky pads. I have systemic granulars that I'll put in. It's 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 a process, but I am ready to kill any unwanted visitors in my house. But anyway, okay. So I guess we kind of wrapped up houseplant control. Ooh, did you, I don't know what our time is like. Want to do a quick thing about people prepping for coal crops? Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about coal crops. So even though it's a little bit early to worry about fall prep as far as pruning 
and pests or fungal management in your garden going into the dormant season, which I do think we should touch on in a later episode, maybe as it gets more into the fall season yeah. uh, and kind of we could discuss what dormant oil is and how to properly use that for pest and fungal control, especially for if you have rust or scale, that's mm, very, mm. very helpful. But one thing you can still, like we, we did say it's still okay to, to plant landscape plants. I think it's getting a little bit close to where I would feel comfortable planting true perennials, things that die back to the ground Mm -hmm. entirely and then reemerge. But as far as shrubs go, I personally like to plant things that are at least a zone hardier Mm -hmm. than my current zone. So I'm in zone six. So if I were to do a landscape zone six plant, I wouldn't feel as comfortable with that. There's certain boxwoods down here that are only hardy to zone six, crepe myrtles, cherry laurels, abelia, nandina, all those sort of things, I probably wouldn't be planting or I'd be trying to get into the ground as soon as possible right now. But other things, panicle hydrangeas, and now I'm on the spot and I'm trying, you know, lilacs, you know, even though they're not looking like much right now, other forms of evergreens like arborvitae, I think it's totally safe. Huh? Trees. Oh, absolutely. The bigger the root ball, the better. Mm, or container. So right? absolutely. So definitely still a great time to do that planting. But also, if you are into veggie gardening, now is a good time to get your coal crops in. C-O-L-E. I think a lot of times people think you're saying cold crops, yep. which still lines up and, and it makes sense. But coal crops being something that's kind of in the the brassica family so those are your broccoli your brussels sprouts cauliflower and then also some of your beefy greens collard greens Mm -hmm. yep yep and then also getting your kale your lettuces those sort of things great time to plant those are all plants that can bolt very easily in the summer heat Mm-hmm. and go to flower pretty quickly before they set their edible portions off or when they do bolt and go to flower or start to spike their growth their flavor profile can sometimes change mm-hmm. so getting them growing when it's cold whether it's in early spring or in early fall and getting them established then is usually preferred and recommended so you might notice at your independent garden centers them introducing those sort of things as well Back along into with their, their selection. Yeah, along with their mums and pansies and ornamental Asters. cabbages and yeah, all that stuff. And Ooh, which I just did. I just did my fall planter, by the way, too. So oh, I got an nice. aster, mum, couple ornamental kales, and I transplanted some of my trailing purple sweet potato vine from oh, a pot sure. in the backyard and made that the trailer for my front porch pots, my front fall porch pots. So yeah, definitely a good time to get your fall porch pots going, too. Even probably, what, central Illinois, further north, into kind of like zone four, it's probably getting a little late to expect your broccoli, cauliflower, stuff like that, that takes a little bit longer to fruit at this point, but... Yeah, we discussed like minimum 45 days, I think, for yeah. for that. Yeah, so. so it's be getting pretty late unless you're going to maybe cover things if, it, if we're going to get a real hard frost because then you're looking into, what, November... But your other leafy greens and stuff like that that Ethan had rattled off that list, definitely still a good time to get those guys in the ground. Absolutely. And I think they add a fun little texture as well. You could do, so last year at this garden center I worked at, I did these fall edible planters. Mm -hmm. And so I had incorporated things like stuff that would still last a little bit going into the season, some sorrel, S-O-R-R-E-L, which is a really tasty herb kind of has a citrusy flavor to it cold hardy rosemary in there that was like the height like the Mm -hmm. center height of those pots so it still was like ornamental looking but entirely edible so there's rosemary and sorrel and there's funky colored sorrels plus the funky color the rainbow shard yep was thrown in there for some fun color yellows and uh, and then pansies because the flowers of pansies are edible Mm-hmm. And they'll use those sometimes, you know, you could top a uh, a cake with it or a cupcake or some people will even make that. I've seen these really cool people who will uh, put the flowers encased in like uh, their mold for making suckers. I was like, oh, that's oh, kind of a yep. fun little cute idea. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you could you could get really creative with your fall planters if you wanted to make something entirely edible as well. Yeah, definitely lots of herb and other related options like that. And some of those, if you made like an all herb edible pot, 
you could also spray that with something more on the organic end, like an insecticidal soap or pyrethrins that's more listed towards um, reorganic or something like that. Have it outside for fall. Once the nighttime temps are going to get too far into the frost range, you know, spray it, bring it in. And then if you have a nice south-facing or west-facing sunny window, some of mm-hmm. those herbs, the hardier stuff, if it's getting good light inside through the winter, you could definitely winter some of that over and have fresh herbs through the winter. Absolutely. In fact, that brings me up uh, the idea of overwintering a pepper back into yeah, my mind. Yeah, you were going to try well. that. I'd, yeah, I'd done that before, and it worked really well. I'd done it with... Um, Almost positive it was the gong bao, G-O-N-G, and then separate word B-A-O, gong bao pepper, or cigarettes, like a Thai cigarette pepper. Mm-hmm. And it produced, I put it in a, a Western window, and it produced all winter long. I've generally heard that a second year pepper will produce multiple more volume wise of fruits than a first year pepper because you know in their native environment they're more like a a woody shrub absolutely so once you winter them over and get that woody kind of shrubby pepper plant established they produce a lot better that second year and so on mine died in spring when i put it back outside and i thought maybe it had just blown through all of its resources and you know i was still happy with the fact that i had these cool peppers throughout the winter season Mm -hmm. but then when i went to go take it out of the pot i realized how root bound it was and i think that's why it died in spring after me putting it outside in water i think it just was way more root bound than i knew that it was sure and therefore it just wasn't retaining water and nutrients that were in the soil because that thing was just jam-packed root so I do want to experiment again, and I do have a couple of peppers that are a little bit squattier and smaller because I do think those will perform better. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to try, if I have space for it, to overwinter at least one of my peppers. So I'll let them start having the bidding war against each other, trying to figure out who's going to impress me the most, (laughs) who gets to survive. (laughs) Right. I'll let them figure that out amongst themselves. I'll just line them all up and throw a crowbar and a broken pool stick on the ground (laughs) in front of them and come back and see who's left standing. Have you, how's the rest of your garden looking? I know we touched Um, on. Now that I've relocated all of my planters because the squirrels were decimating my garden. Mm. um, Yeah. I've never have more violent thoughts towards a squirrel than I have this year. They, I had my pots because I did everything in containers and I had them along a chain link fence mm-hmm. and they were just running along a chain link fence and just dropping down and just taking everything. Mm. Um, I didn't taste my first tomato off of my plant until August. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because they literally were devouring and eating everything before I had a chance to get anything, even my eggplant. Well, your whole yard is only full of oak trees that are a food source for them. So they're probably. Yeah, it's an old neighborhood. So every (laughs) other third house has a freaking pin oak in it. Yeah. So, yeah, I have, I think, 20 plus squirrel houses Mm. between both of the oak trees in my front and backyard. And so it's just this never ending supply and they have no natural predators here. So there's you could fill a crater with the amount of squirrels that are just in my neighborhood. It's it's a lot, and I oh, I have bad thoughts towards the squirrels in my <laughs> neighborhood. They are they are not PG thoughts. <laughs> so anyway, I relocated them and I put them smack dab in the center of my yard, where there was no place for them to be able to climb and jump down onto. And it has helped, and I actually started seeing production and i'm still getting production because all of my tomatoes were indeterminate species sure and the weather has still been suitable for them to continuously grow a little bit here and there mm-hmm. so i still have my sun golds or sun sugars are still producing quite a bit i still have lemon boys going i have one or two i think i had a brandy wine and off the top of my head, I'm blocking what my fourth tomato was, but they have some large green tomatoes that are. I'm just waiting for them to set. Hillbilly. 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 Yep. yep. So I think I did Hillbilly and Brandywine, mm-hmm. and I'll hopefully be able to finally have 
one of those because those are two tomatoes I have yet to be able to have a tomato from sure. because of the squirrels. But they went kind of dormant in the heat of the summer. But now with the cooler fall temps, they're starting to produce again. But my peppers, though, my peppers went buck wild. I have more peppers than I know what to do with. Luckily, I picked a lot of delicious ones for fresh eating. So there's been times I've just gone out into my garden and just picked a Melrose pepper, which is a sweet one, kind of like those lunchbox peppers you see at grocery stores all the time. Mm -hmm. And poblanos are doing well. The shishito peppers are delicious. I've really liked the shishito peppers. Eggplant is starting to produce again. They also went through like this sort of summer dormancy um, and the squirrels were eating those. But eggplant's coming back and my sweet potato is still going crazy. And this is my first year growing sweet potato. We had talked about it a couple weeks ago, I think, where I was asking you when you think it's a good time to pluck it. And I think... Because it's in a container. Because, it, yeah, it's in a big, giant fiber pot. So a biodegradable container that I'll just, when I'm done or when it's time, I'm just going to cut the bottom off of it. Mm-hmm. And because per my research, the sweet potato skin is so fragile that if you're digging them out and you're damaging them, they're so prone to getting infections at that stage upon early harvest that it's highly recommended to be as gentle as you can when removing your sweet potatoes from the ground. So that's why I chose the container method and to just cut the bottom of this fiber pot, which if you haven't grown in a fiber pot, it kind of feels like cardboard, like a thick, sturdy cardboard pot Mm -hmm. is, is what these have been grown in. And so it looks like I still have maybe another month or so before it's ready to harvest them. And then I'll go through the process of doing that. It looks like it's a little bit more in depth than I understood compared to regular potatoes, which I've grown several times. So there is going to be this curing process that the sweet potatoes have to go through to harden off and to be sustainable and to turn their starches into sugars Mm -hmm. uh, and giving those potatoes the sweetness to them. But it'll be an interesting an interesting endeavor. Oh, and my carrots, my carrots, which I planted all in the containers of my tomato plants. That's kind of one of my normal things that I do is I sow my carrot seeds into my tomato containers and I'm getting a lot of carrot production. So I'm looking forward to plucking those out here pretty soon too. And you've kind of thinned those out as the season has gone, right? Eat some of the, they're probably down to 40% of what I originally planted. Sure. And then get a little bit bigger size out of them towards the end of the season. Mm-hmm. which is the game plan yeah you if you have them growing too close together then you get a bunch of really skinny pathetic carrots where if you give them some space and as long as you water adequately which is also why i put them in in tomatoes because i'm having to at times of the season have to water my tomatoes given that they're in containers quite regularly sure so in that time period in the summer heat the carrots also benefit well from being heavily watered especially in the growing media that they are just standard potting mix for tomatoes yeah so yeah, a quick little update on, yeah i know uh, we talked about it in spring and when we did our veggies episode so good to get a little update for the listeners yeah i have um my herbs are still doing well my uh, eucalyptus is going bananas this was the first year i grew lemon eucalyptus mm-hmm. which i still don't quite know what i want to do with it but it certainly is a cool plant that sucker's cool. like four feet tall <laughs> are you gonna try to bring that in cut it back a little bit? I don't know. I, I might I might try to overwinter it. I'll probably try to overwinter the eucalyptus. Mm-hmm. If anything, I might cut the eucalyptus and make like a dried arrangement with I those see, uh, stems. The shower bundles are, have been popular. With yeah, the fresh that's something my mom and... used to do when I was a kid, Yep, is put like a little sachet of uh, eucalyptus, dried eucalyptus in a little burlap sack or mesh sack in the shower and Mm -hmm. let the steam kind of really get that going to help your allergies i've seen even now just uh they'll do like 12 inch or so pieces fresh cut and bundle them together with a piece of twine and just hang it from the shower head so that as the hot water is nearby you know not in the water but as that hot water is nearby and the steam and everything it kind of releases some of those oils yeah yeah i I definitely have enough to kind of experiment with that Mm mm-hmm and then this was my first time growing stevia as well. And I really freaking like that plant. Oh, yeah. It is so sweet. It is so sugary to just eat those leaves by themselves. Yep. I, my mom's grown it and I know other people have told me that, but to experience that for the first time myself. Sure. 
was super fun to have this super sweet leaf and to just feel like you could crush up a leaf and throw it in your water with some lemon juice and kind of have like this instant quick pseudo lemonade yep. sort of a flavor or throw it in your tea or something like that. I have really, I will be growing stevia or a mojito again, if for you had sure. fresh mint leaves. You could throw some of those stevia in with your mojito for a little bit of sweetness. And I did grow spearmint, so that could totally work out. Yeah. I haven't done anything with my spearmint. At this point, I just let it go to flower, and all the pollinators were happy as they could be yeah. by having all those mint flowers to go to. Yeah. But, yeah, that's my update. Cool. Does that about wrap it up for kind of pre-fall? I think, yeah, this week's prep. episode, and we have, you know, we'll, going into the fall season, there's lots of things to talk about moving forward. Yeah, as well as some other, you know, non-fall-specific topics we have coming up in the pipeline. Mm-hmm. Did you have anything else on your list? No. Yeah, it's just time to say goodbye to the Hissapomies. Ooh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> you had that one loaded up, ready to go. <laughs> well, with that, this has been another episode of the Take It or Leave It podcast. Do you want to go ahead and close us out, Ethan? Bye. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, okay. No. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So thanks for listening again. As always, you can find us on our Facebook page, our Instagram page at Take It or Leave It Pod. And you can also find Nick at his Instagram at nfarrington and me at Hortwise. And if you ever have any questions or comments or ideas, anything, always feel free to message us either on our email at show at takeitorleafitpod.com or you can message us through Messenger on Facebook or Instagram. You can private message us on Instagram. We'd love to hear from you. Any of your whatever you're going through garden wise, any questions that you may have, pest questions, management. And like I've said before, feel free to send us pictures. We'd love to talk about them. If you have any topics, always feel free to reach out to us and we might just reference you on one of our episodes. Yeah. And also Patreon. If you'd like to support the show financially for just $6 a month, we release two extra episodes or I'm getting caught up from busy season on releasing two extra episodes a month, as well as some additional clips. We're working on getting that built up more. Yeah, it helps the show out a lot for just six bucks a month to have us keep coming to you guys with new topics. Yeah. And that's at patreon.com slash take it or leave it. Sweet. All right. I'm Nick Farrington. And I'm Ethan Weiss. And this has been another episode of the Take It or Leave It podcast. We'll see you guys next week. Goodbye. Bye.